0: Hey queersians. it's Evan Jones, co-host of the Your Queer Story podcast here with a special edition interview. This week I interview Joel Barrett. Joel is a motivational speaker, an author, and an all-around incredible person. He was a former fundamentalist pastor who underwent conversion therapy, and later came out, is a happily married gay man today, and he works to help other people be true to themselves, other LGBTQ people, as well as individuals in general to find their identity, to reclaim their authenticity, and he does that all through his website joelspeaksout.com you can go there you can check out some of the incredible work he does and most importantly you can pre-order his book godly dot 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 but gay which tells his life story which encourages other people and books will be in hand by pride month that's just a few weeks away so check it out joelspeaksout.com but for now let's listen to joel's story Thank you for joining me today, Joel. I really appreciate it. Uh, we've actually tried. I tried to talk to you three years ago and that didn't work out, but it's better now because you've got a book and Oops. we're going to talk a little bit about that and some other things.
1: Sorry, I had, I had my Facebook open and it binged on us there. I closed it out
0: though. <laughs> That's okay. So. I'd like to start with you just uh, telling a little bit of your story. I know that you have done this before. So in whatever way you'd like to, can you introduce yourself to the listeners and tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure, sure. Thanks, Evan, for having me on. I appreciate it. And um, I'm happy to to be a part of this. Um, So I'm Joel Barrett. I am an LGBTQ writer, speaker, and gatherer. Uh, my brand is Joel Speaks Out. You can learn more about me at joelspeaksout.com. But uh, in a nutshell, what I do is I encourage people to live authentically, not controlled by fear or shame. And I use my story as the springboard for that. So I have a pretty colorful story that we'll talk about. But in a nutshell, I was raised in a very conservative Baptist environment, went into ministry, married woman, three kids, always knew I was gay, but eventually... Um, sought help to get that fixed because of my, my upbringing that was not acceptable. So I spent about three years in ex-gay or conversion therapy before finally coming out. And now I use that story to talk about a wide variety of things, including just helping people make bold moves in their lives, their workplaces, because I know a lot about challenging everything. In my life. So that's the nutshell version. I'm sure we'll unpack that more <laughs> deeply.
0: <laughs> yeah, yes, we will. Um, so, and we'll we'll do a couple plugs through here um, for joelspeaksout.com and, and other of your work. Um, so it's interesting because we actually come from the same background, though we did not know each other except for through social media. Mm-hmm. Um, I also was raised in the independent fundamental Baptist movement. What, um, can I ask what area you were raised in or like what party you were affiliated with?
1: Um, so, um, grew up in a little town in central Illinois called Effingham, okay. uh, in Effingham, Illinois, don't laugh. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. um, that's where I grew up and my folks were a part of, uh, independent fundamental Baptist churches. They had left the Southern Baptist convention because it was getting mm-hmm. too, too liberal Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> really amusing when I say that (laughs) yeah Um, but uh, and that's where of course this was in the mid 70s like 77 or something like that and um, so the Christian school movement was just beginning then so I went into a Mm. small Christian school Um, so I spent my life there then I went to college at uh, Independent Fundamental Baptist College in Jacksonville Florida called Trinity Baptist College Um, and for those that of course, the, the churches. Mm-hmm. I, I, Evan, I don't know a lot about your background, but I'm yeah. sure you relate to this in the sense that um, c- the colleges were always started by churches. So usually it was some yes. large church, yeah. and they were very poorly run. But so, <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> Dr. Bob Gray at uh, Trinity Baptist
0: uh, okay, college, yeah.
1: Church College in in Jacksonville, Florida. I went from there after I graduated there, I went to Peoria, Illinois, was on staff at a large independent Baptist church there before I then got into church planting and I moved to the South Bend, Indiana area and planted a church there and pastored that for about three years before I started dealing with my own issues.
0: Wow. So yeah, I, um, so I was part of the Heil sect. Like okay, Heil sect. I'm
1: very sorry to hear that.
0: <laughs> sorry. No, but um, obviously we knew we had close ties to Bob Gray. His yeah. son, um, Scott, actually taught at our, our church for a while, our um, college for a while, and was involved in, in uh, FBC Hammond for a while. Um, I think you might
1: be thinking of uh, the Bob Gray Texas.
0: Oh, is that that's different Bob Gray? Yeah, different Bob, okay. Gray. Yeah. Bob, Bob Gray. Yeah. But Bob Gray in
1: Florida was also good friends with Jack Hiles. Okay. And yeah. I I knew Jack Hiles. I mean, he came to our church and spoke numerous yeah. times and so on and so forth.
0: Yeah. I mean, well, he was all over the country at the time. That's the thing. Like, so there's these hubs all over the country. Yes. So you had the Hiles sect up in like the the um, northern, northern Midwest. You had the Grays of Texas taking over a big chunk of the South. Um you had, who's out, Treiber out on the, the, oh, West, yeah, the, Coast, the West Coast. Treeber. Yeah, yep. and all of them, they, they did. They started their, co- their own colleges because that's how they're, um, well, that's how they're continuing the conditioning and keeping people. Yeah, and, and
1: you know, most of those uh, so-called fellowships always revolved around what school you went to.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mm-hmm. I've done I've I've looked into that. I wish someone would write a book about that because there's always this uh, thing in the independent fundamental Baptist movement where people like to say that it's independent and you know they're all mm-hmm. their own. But if you trace their colleges and their schools, you see how strongly connected they actually are.
1: Yeah, and the, that was the whole reason everybody was starting a college too is because they couldn't find one that they agreed with. And so <laughs> then they're like, you know, <laughs> we're going to start our up. own. And then, and then that starts a right? little kind of like cult click thing. right?
0: Know? Well, that's why we couldn't go to um, Bob Jones, because Bob Jones was too liberal. And then Pensacola yep. was getting too liberal for us. And mm-hmm. so. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, yeah, that and like for us, the uh, uh, same those two colleges, Bob Jones and Pensacola, like besides the fact that they weren't quite enough like us they also did not have the name baptist anywhere in there in there
0: yeah exactly. and that was, yeah.
1: <laughs> that was but trick, then for yeah. some reason hiles anderson was always able to have a pass on that and not have baptist anywhere in their name <laughs>
0: uh, yeah i mean <laughs> well there's it always does not make right? sense it it's never does you can't
1: <laughs> exactly
0: yeah <laughs> So can you tell me, so do you know about when you first started having feelings of believing that you were gay? Or did that come later on? Did you know uh, as a young person in, these, in a Christian school?
1: Yeah, I, you know, looking back, I always knew. I, I didn't use the term gay because I didn't really even know yeah. the term, but I knew from very early, like as soon as five or six, that I was different and that mm-hmm. there was something about me. And so... Growing up in our churches, I'm sure you're familiar with all of this, but you know, things were said. I quickly learned from the pulpit that whoever is gay, whether it was me or anybody else, that is not cool. Mm -hmm. Um, And I heard some of the most horrific things said from the pulpit um, that I look back and I go, you know, if your desire was to help someone change, you sure were going about it in a really poor way because... I can remember like a particular day sitting in the pew of church when I was probably like 12, really, you know, blossoming as a young closeted gay boy and, um, <laughs> and hearing, you know, preachers say things like we should ship them all off to an island somewhere and let them infect themselves with disease and die you know, that kind of stuff and mocking and imitating and like all of the stereotypes and calling them every name under the sun, you know, and I'm going, so as a kid sitting there going, well, I think that's me, Mm -hmm. but obviously I can't, I better never let anybody know that's me. Yeah. And so that was kind of my whole path. It was like, well, that the the church just, you know, what people like to say, church is a safe place. It's like, no, it was one of the least safe places because I learned early on that while I was trying to be a good godly kid, and I was, and I was well-liked, I was very um, compliant, and you know, I really wanted to serve the Lord, so to speak, in whatever capacity that meant, and yet I always knew I was gay, and that's, that's the title of my book. It's Godly But Gay, which bothers a lot of people because they're like, well, shouldn't it be godly and gay? And I'm like, but that's it. In those situations i was godly until the moment somebody would find out i was gay and then all of that is gone you could not be both it was this constant contradiction that you were living in
0: yeah and that's i think that's an excellent point to make and you know i found a lot in myself and in other friends who also left and i've spoken with um this in, I guess you know maybe it's an attempt to – I don't know if it was so much an attempt to hide who you were, but there were, for me at least, there was this desire to prove that I wasn't, that I wasn't as disgusting or as revolting as they, they claimed I was. And so I had this, this bigger strive to prove myself, to prove that – like you said, to prove that I was godly. Is that – were you – do you feel that it was more that you were trying to hide yourself or were you trying to kind of break free of this?
1: I was trying to be the person that I'd been told that God wanted me to be. Mm -hmm. And I was also um, hiding who I was because I was ashamed of that. And I lived in fear of anybody finding out. But I really did want to be a good, godly person. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, I wasn't just trying to be extra good so I could. So nobody would guess although i think that does play into it for anybody you know my Andrew talks about the i can't remember the exact quote but uh the greatest burden carried is that of carrying an untold story inside you you know and it's that that play that wreaks havoc on you over time where you're constantly trying to yes compensate so that nobody would guess that that's what's happening but i did have a real desire to serve the Lord in some capacity. Cause that's, that was all I knew. That was all that was ever held up was, you know, be godly. Now nobody could ever really explain what that meant or mm-hmm. looked like, but there was that unattainable goal. And I, I look back and I go, you know, well, I was, you know, by all of your yeah. standards, you know, I was a really godly person and, you know, in church and going, Soul winning door-to-door visitation, you know, and reading, memorizing my body. I was doing all the right things. And that became my attempt to fix myself. It was always that feeling that if I could do the next amount of right things, that somehow that would correct who I was. So Mm -hmm. I found myself on this constant journey of a lie after lie of telling myself, okay, when I go to Bible college, that's going to take care of everything yeah. because then I'm going to be in this environment with all these other young people who are wanting to serve the Lord and I won't think about this. And it was like, well, then when I'm, when I'm starting to date somebody, that will take care of it. When I get married, that will take care of it. When I have kids, that will take care of it. When I go into ministry, that will take care of it. That ongoing, I spent a whole lifetime
0: of that uh, trust, believing that lie that I was telling myself. Right. And how did, how, what were the feelings when you were doing these things and you weren't getting the results you wanted? Like when you went to Bible college and you realized you still were gay and, 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 or you still had attraction to men. What was that feeling?
1: Well, I was really frustrated. Um, and wh- I took all the responsibility. I, I, I didn't blame anybody else. I just thought, there I go. Again, I'm not trying hard enough, you know, because as you know, the language of like, mm-hmm. Surrender to God, whatever that means, you know, I'm I'm not surrendered enough, you know, and I'm like, I don't know how you go about being more or less surrendered. But, you know, so I really just beat myself up over it. Um, Mm -hmm. And I and I part of that, too, was I thought if I could hate myself enough that that would motivate me. So I spent time like really working to hate myself because I thought I obviously love my sin too much. If I learned to hate it, then it would, you know, I wouldn't want this. And so I would stand in front of the mirror and just like say, you are despicable. You're disgusting. Can't stand you. You know, thinking that if I could hate myself, that that somehow would motivate me to be the right person. doesn't make any sense when you talk about it now, but at the time it felt like um, the thing to do.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it makes sense when you understand the context and you understand that that's what they they always put whatever you're you were struggling with back on you. Right. Even things like if you were struggling with depression, you weren't close enough to God. Yeah. Whatever your sin was. And and mental illness was also a sin. Addiction was a sin. Being LGBTQ was a sin. Whatever your so-called sin was, it was your fault. You weren't doing the work.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And it's it's such a trap. It's such a lie. Um, uh, because it, it really is, yeah, it's just a trap. It, it, it doesn't yeah. get anybody anywhere. There's no hope involved in it. Yeah.
0: I, I see that a lot still. So I, um, you know, cause I I've spent the last several years myself being out and you probably have a similar experience. I talked to a lot of people that still are in fundamentalism or now I talk to a lot of people that are in other forms of extreme religion. And I, it's always, they're always shame based, even when they come to the point where they can accept themselves for who they are. Everything else is still this shame based. So, you know, I would have a better relationship with my parents if I would try harder, I would mm-hmm. have this, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't be such a screw up if, and it's because that's how we were conditioned. It's all shame based and it's, and it stays in other parts of our life.
1: Yes, it does. It does. And that's a, you know, it's a control tactic. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you've watched any, like, cult documentaries, but I went through oh, a period yes. of time. <laughs> stud, I started I had some colleagues and we were doing for a while we were doing this, we called it cult lunch. And at lunch mm. hour we would watch a cult uh, documentary. Oh, wow. And I thought, oh, this will be interesting. You know, well the more I watched, the more I'm like two things really popped out on me. One, what I was a part of was very much like that. Yep. Two, all of these have the same basic motivation and that is sex, money, power. Yep. And <laughs> And it was like, everything else is just like, okay, different characters, different setting, you know, different theology, but it all boiled down to a quest for sex, money, or power, or some combination of all the above. And I just realized, wow, I was a part of something that operated very much like these cults. And it took me a while to kind of even be willing to say I was a part of a cult, because I was taught a very specific definition of what a cult was back in my fundamentalist days and so it's kind of like oh well no but the more I tell you writing my book really helped me kind of see afresh kind of from an outsider's point of view as I'm writing and going this is really messed up like, you know, like <laughs> yeah like you no know, wonder people think that when they hear my story they're like what you know <laughs>
0: Yeah, I yeah. For the longest time, I couldn't understand why people were so shocked. Well they, why people would say, "You should write a book," and I was like, "I mean, it can't be that different. It can't be that bizarre." But it is when you, when is. you get in the outside world. I um, uh, uh, the word "cult." I I've also seen a lot of survivors struggle with that word because it's it's such a polarizing word and. I feel like it also makes – nobody wants to believe that they were part of a cult because we we feel foolish and we feel that we messed up. And, and part of that is, again, the way that cults are presented for a long time. I think that's shifting, but for a long time, it's like you join a cult. And it's, uh, again, on you if you're part of a cult and not, in fact, the way that people are mal- manipulated and lied to and yeah. coerced into these
1: environments. It's it's kind of like, oh, these this is structured. That's what makes mm. a cult. But not about what you just mentioned—the the lies, manipulation, all that. So when you look at it from that point of view, you realize, oh no, I was very much a part of that. Yeah. But like I was taught, a cult had to have like an individual leader, and so we mm-hmm. always took pride in the fact that, oh no, this is about <laughs> Jesus, not about a person, you know. Right, but then, right. yeah, as you and I know, it was always about people. I mean, the pastor, whoever that pastor mm-hmm. was oftentimes became that you know God's man that was to not be yeah. questioned. I, I can remember I went to pastor school at, at uh Jack Hiles Church a, a yeah. couple of times because I was forced to. And I, <laughs> and I said because even when I was in fundamentalism, I just did not buy that brand. I just was mm-hmm. like, no, this is this is not right. This is hero worship. And but mm-hmm. I remember hearing Jack Hiles say to this huge congregation of pastors that you should not even buy a car without talking to your pastor first.
0: Yeah.
1: And I was like, even at that time, I'm like, that's just stupid. You know, like why on (laughs) earth do you need to be involved with people's car purchases? You know, like, (laughs) there is something wrong that you even want people to talk to you before that. Like, especially with a congregation as large as he had, do you really want that many phone calls about your, the, who's what car right. someone's going to buy? You know, but that's when I started realizing this is not about Jesus at all. This is yeah. about this cult leader and yeah, his yeah. sex money power.
0: I, it's funny because my, I remember my parents, cause he would have this uh, line and you could, you would wait outside after uh Sunday morning and Sunday night services and occasionally Wednesday night and you would people would wait to talk to him and there were times where we had to wait to buy a vehicle because my parents had to wait in line to ask him if he thought it was a good idea and if the line was too long and they didn't get a chance to talk to him on Sunday morning we'd have to come up on Sunday night and then sometimes back on Wednesday night sitting there waiting for a chance to talk to Preacher about this car we need to buy yeah
1: yeah <laughs> isn't that I mean that's just nuts when you think about right? it when you're involved right. in it, that's that's the power of being in cult-like environments is that, like you say, you get sucked into it and you don't realize you're a part of it. And yeah. it, it, you just be learn as well, this is just how it's supposed to be. And you don't really question it. And then it's not until later that you look back and you go, what on earth was I thinking?
0: <laughs> right. So, you, I mean, because you graduate and you become a pastor yourself. So yes. how did you... How did you take that transfer of power or that, you know, did you, I'm, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't that level, but what was that like in your church? How did you foster your relationship between you and your congregants?
1: Well, my husband always says one of the, salvation okay. through all of those years was that I always had a heavy dose of skepticism and mm-hmm. self and so, yeah. yeah. I kind of was a part of, like, a lot of fundamentalism did not make sense to me, even when I was in it. But it was kind of like, well, better be safe than sorry. I'll just go along with it. You know, like, it doesn't make sense. But, oh, well, I'll just trust it by faith Mm -hmm. and hope that, you know, helped me a lot. So even when I was pastoring, I was like, no, I don't want any part of that crap. Like, no, I, I, I cared about people. And I did not want to be there their go-to person for every problem in life hard to not cultivate foster that kind of leader worship narcissist power stuff Um, because I just really cared about people I still love people I I feel that all of us are ministers just some people get paid to do it and others of us don't and so I didn't I worked hard to not foster that kind of thing um, and I also like I was always aware of my own shortcoming um, mm. being gay and so I had uh, like be this hard on people yeah. you know and so that that influenced. I think it made me a better pastor and a better person because I was like I am not gonna shame these people I know how I feel and so yeah. I tried to just be much more um, I don't know open and inviting had people from my past tell me now they're like thank you back in the day you know you were lord i don't even want to think about what i probably (laughs) told you you know and they're like no you were awesome and helpful and i'm like i'm glad to hear that because i that still pains me sometimes this day to think what are some of the stupid things i said and taught Mm -hmm. you know yeah
0: now did you um preach Uh, against homosexuality
1: i did um, in the sense, just like anything else that is yeah. sinful. I'd never made that a bully pulpit because, again, I'm like, no, I know what's going <laughs> I'm not going to shame people for this because yeah. I always felt like the one thing I wanted was somebody to give me an ounce of hope, mm. and nobody ever did. And so I'm like, I don't want to be this person to contribute to that. I, if, if someone is struggling with something, I want them to feel hope, not shame and fear. And I did counsel a couple of guys back in the way back in the day who came to me because they were gay. And mm-hmm. honestly, I, I had no clue what I was doing. And obviously, yeah. I, looking back now, I would handle that very differently. But at the time, I thought, oh, good, maybe I can find my own help by helping them. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. What, what, um, so you were all, you were always pretty aware yes of your you being gay and so how did that conflict with you i mean so it just seems like it it made you compassionate to other people's sins or and i when i say sins i'm using the fundamentalist term yeah yeah you know
1: i hear you i know i struggle with that too sometimes (laughs) i'm like i don't want you to think i'm calling a sin but yes in light of what the doctrine that we had yes it did it made me be like i'm who am i to act like this is something horrible that you shouldn't, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with it. So I was more compassionate. Um, I also simultaneously into the early, well, when I got in ministry, um, I became a, I, I was always known as gay. Then it mm-hmm. became a quest to have some kind of gay interactions without Mm -hmm. it being threatening so i became back in the day before the internet and before apps like grinder and things like that i was a cruiser and so i cruised Mm -hmm. restrooms and parks for other men that might want to have a quick anonymous sexual encounter and so i spent a lot of time cruising and a, a drug to me you know that it's like oh i need that release and then of course that just fed even greater shame and guilt for who I was and what I was doing. And it, it just really fed a horrible, horrible, um, it was a bad time. Like I, I, I felt so horrible about myself and yet I still wanted it and I wanted more. And I would swear to God, this is the last time I won't let it happen again. You know, I was just this constant Mm -hmm. cycle. And then there'd be times when I would just go out in the woods and just scream and cry and beg God to take it away. And, you know, all of that. So that was, um, I was I had a lot of conflict, a lot of internal mm-hmm. conflict all the time and a lot of fear because the more I cruised, that meant at the time I didn't understand what I was, what the, the cruising culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know you're much younger than me. So it's still something that a lot of younger folks don't even really a- aren't aware of. But it was the way that what I now realize was other closeted gay men, were the ones cruising and everybody yeah. was afraid of the same thing. They were all afraid of being found out. And so you, you just did this, this thing, it was anonymous. You didn't really talk. It just got in and got off so to speak. And, yeah. and it was, it became a fear of mine that every Sunday morning, this is a big church that I was on staff of. I would walk out onto the platform because I led the choir. I would lead the choir in this opening number and turn around to lead the congregation in an opening song. And while I was doing that, I would start scanning the audience, mm. scared to death. Yeah. Somebody was gonna be there that knew my secret.
0: Yeah.
1: And did you uh, they never did, you did like
0: did you ever did you go far out of town? Did you try to do your best oh, no. to make sure that wouldn't happen? Mm-hmm. No. Wow. That's because cold.
1: because there was there were those weren't really options. So yeah. I just knew the cruising spots and um Yeah. So it was, I mean, I never went into like a gay bar or an adult Mm -hmm. bookstore or anything like that because I knew I couldn't be seen there. But I always, I rationalized in my head if somebody saw me in a park, they wouldn't think anything, right? You know, they just think Joel's out enjoying the day you know kind of thing so well it was strategic in my mind looking yeah. back now it wasn't all that strategic but it felt like it at the time
0: <laughs> well i mean that's that is why those pla- that is why parks especially in restrooms became cruising spots because you could um you know give a reason or plausible deniability right exactly yeah <laughs> Hi Christians, it's Evan. I'm just pausing here to tell you all about the Vashti Initiative. You've probably heard us talk about it or allude to it on the podcast. The Vashti Initiative is a new organization that was launched at the very beginning of 2021 and seeks to help individuals who are fleeing or transitioning or still healing from spiritual or religious abuse. What's different about this organization is that it looks to provide social services for people in these tough situations, whereas there are a lot more groups coming forward and speaking out against religious and spiritual abuse today and creating awareness and even trying to pass some legislation. There are only a handful of organizations and agencies that are providing tangible support for victims. If you are a person who identifies as a victim or survivor of religious or spiritual abuse, go to VashtiInitiative.org. Ask to speak to someone, check out the services that are provided, and stay up to date with more services as they launch. Again, that's Vashti, V-A-S-H-T-I initiative.org. Check them out today. Yep. So you wrestled with this for a long time. You had three kids. And mm-hmm. then um, and then what happened?
1: Um, well, I uh, was on staff at a church in Peoria, Illinois area um, for almost 10 years. And then mm-hmm. I kind of outgrew that and was ready to move on to something next in my ministry career and thought I was ready to lead my own church and so i got into church planting and um with the intention of just planting this one church i wasn't going to be a uh chronic church planter but
0: can you explain the term church planting just for
1: listeners yeah yeah i always forget that that's not a (laughs) uh, that's not a household (laughs) language it literally just means going someplace and starting a church from scratch so you're planting a brand new church just like you would so i did i moved to the south bend indiana area didn't know anybody. I won't get into what got us there, but it was just through some research and things. And I ended up there and I went through the process of planting a church, which is very much now I, I do a lot of like small business entrepreneurship coaching as part of mm-hmm. what I do. And um, I realized now I just was starting a new business. Is really yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that was in 1999. And at the time I literally thought, okay, Joel, This is your big break. You are going to move to a brand new area. Nobody knows you. You don't know anybody. You don't know where the cruising spots are. This is going to be your life's work. So don't F it up. You know? Um, And so I went and I thought, okay, this is it. This is my chance. This is the clean slate I'd always wanted. And um, I white knuckled it for probably a month. (laughs) But Simultaneously, what was happening is the internet was becoming our a household thing. And yeah. so, with the internet came a different kind of cruising. Um, I could access chat rooms and gay porn and things from the comfort of my own home. And so, I discovered gay.com and I began cruising from my church office, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And so, I was so, once I started. Of course, then it didn't take long, and I learned where the cruising spots were, and I was, you know, hooking up again. And I was like, I just felt horrible because I was like, man, you had your fresh, clean slate, and now you've messed that one up too. And this is what you said you were going to do for the rest of your life. So now this is going to haunt you for the rest of your life. Somebody, there are people out there that know your secret, and they may show up at any time in any situation. You know that was so. I was going through all of that during my cruising time though, I made an arrangement to hook up with a guy and, um, long story short, we, we hooked up in the back of a van in the Kmart parking lot in broad daylight. And, um, but when I got into the van to him, and there was just this overwhelming feeling message that just said, you're, he's you like, you're looking at yourself. And I I didn't know what it meant, but I just felt it like it was just this weird moment of like, why do I feel like I'm looking in a mirror? And so we did our thing. And then I think he felt that as well. And so at the end, we broke the rules of anonymous and we started being real with one another, telling Mm -hmm. each other a little bit of truth about ourselves. Come to find out there I am a Baptist pastor in this van, and he was a Methodist pastor. Wow. And it was in that moment that that realization that yes, I am looking at myself. And we both were like, this is not good. Like this is not who we want to be. We are risking our family, we are risking our careers, we are risking so much. And so we told each other, we would help each other or like kind of hold each other accountable to go get our own help. He went his way and I, I called Exodus International and that's when I started ex-gay therapy, it was from that moment.
0: Now, Exodus International, see, I, I um, a very odd. It wasn't specific um, LGBTQ reparative therapy, though they, they did practice that. But it was different. I went through Reformers Unanimous. I don't know if you're familiar Yeah, I
1: knew right? you were going to say that. I was yeah. like, as soon as you started, I was like, all right, but I know what you
0: went through. <laughs> yeah, so it's a different kind. But Exodus International, I do know that it was the most prominent gay conversion therapy Um, program in the United States for a long time. So can you tell a little bit about that program?
1: Yeah. So Exodus was um, an international organization, kind of an umbrella ministry organization that basically said anybody that is practicing according to what they felt like was approved. It wasn't necessarily, they did do some of their own curriculum, but they also just like kind of put their stamp of approval on any counselors, therapists, organizations. So when you would go to their website, there was a directory for all over the world of who you could call for help. And, um, but they also held big conferences. They had a lot of national speakers. Um, many of what's funny is most of them have now come out, but,
0: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> but at the time they were the big ex gay I, I don't know if you know, um, John Polk, uh, he was like the poster boy of ex-gay therapy for the longest time. He and his wife, they were like the success story. Focused on the family, would always feature them in time. So anytime you wanted to talk about mm-hmm. ex-gay therapy, he and his wife were they like, see, it works, people. Yeah. Um, she was a former lesbian. He was a former gay man. And, of course, th- that relationship has ended. He is out now. And he actually wrote a blurb for my book. Um, okay, <laughs> and he and I have talked and he's he's a great guy. He said but it,
0: John Polk.
1: Yeah, P P A, I'm sorry, I'm gonna misspell his name and I don't want to do that. <laughs> um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna look at it. As soon as I said it, I was like, I should probably make sure I'm saying that right. Yeah, P A U L K. Polk. <laughs> okay, Hulk, Hulk. Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, uh he's a great guy, and and it's kind of surreal that I'm friends with him now because I'm like wow I remember you being the success story that I was supposed to be looking up to you know (laughs) yeah (laughs) so anyway that's what Exodus was I I called the director for the state of Indiana at that time and started seeing him I was in South Bend he was in Indianapolis so it was about a three-hour drive and I would drive down there and see him and then he had me come to a couple of conference things that I went to and I heard Some bigger names, like um, maybe you've heard of Cy Rogers, who just died a year or two ago. Um, But Cy was a pretty charismatic speaker who, unfortunately, did not realize that his story was actually about being trans, not about being gay. But um, because his whole story was he was just like weeks away from having his uh, transitional surgeries So on and so forth. And then I don't remember the details, but basically he found Jesus and so on and so forth. But I'm like, later on, I'm going, well, well, honey, you weren't, you weren't gay. You were trans. Like, that's a trans story. That's not a gay story. (laughs) Like, and unfortunately you lived your life in denial now, but regardless, I would go and hear speakers like that. Um, And then eventually I switched over to a counselor closer to me because the counselor in in, uh, um, Indianapolis was like, you don't need to drive this far. Here's somebody that's a part of our approved network. And so I started seeing someone closer to me. And I spent almost three years total in ex-gay. We called it ex-gay therapy back then. Um, Now I refer to it as conversion therapy because that's the term that most people are familiar with, but it's all the same thing. XK therapy, conversion therapy, reparative therapy. Now they have renamed it again because all those terms have gotten such a bad rap that now they are calling it reintegrative therapy. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. They've been renaming that for for decades since it started, you know, in the, in the fifties. I mean, and they honestly, if you even want to go back to early, you know, psychology and psychiatry where they were just treating people, you know, inversion therapy, all of this kind of stuff. Yeah.
1: And so if one gets a bad rap, they just change the name. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Rebrand.
0: <laughs> so you did this for three years. And was it a, was that a toll on you and your family? Did your family know about it?
1: Well, one of the first questions I asked, I remember in the counselor's office was, um, I'm not going to have to tell my wife or my church about this, am I? Mm. And he was like, I don't know. We'll see. And okay. I was like, oh, great. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so at some point I was I was seeing these counselor. My wife did not know what was going on. I just told her I needed to see a counselor mm-hmm. for the stress in my life, which was true, just yeah. not the full truth. And um I didn't tell my church because I was like, what am I supposed to do? This is all I know. But as I began to work on my stuff, the the, the interesting thing is. I'd never been in any kind of counseling or therapy ever in my life. And so.
0: Right. Well, they're very against that in the Yeah. AG, and a yeah. lot of fundamentalists and, and most cults, right? Outside influence, that's never good.
1: Right. So some of what they did in XK therapy would just be what would be done in any situation, any mm-hmm. counseling situation. It was like, so tell me about your upbringing. And, you know, and then I would tell. My stories and the things that happened, and then it was the you know obligatory. And how do you feel about that, or how did that make you feel? Kind of. So I needed to have someone to unpack that stuff too, because I'd never done it before. I'd never been real with anybody. So in that sense, and that could have happened in any counselor's office. It didn't have to be. That was not unique to XK therapy. But I found that helpful because I, for the first time in my life, I started unpacking things, and they weren't from an independent fundamentalist background. So. The more I talked about my religious upbringing and the churches I was in, even they were like, "Yeah, that's pretty extreme." Really, you know? So the
0: therapist that you went to for to help cure you or fix you was shocked by your fundamentalist upbringing.
1: Yes, yes. Wow. And it was like, mm, kind of like Joel. That's 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 not normal, you know, kind yeah. of thing. <laughs> so you know, that was that was kind of helpful for me because. Yeah. It's like, oh, really? Like somebody actually is listening to me and not judging me. And, you know, so in that sense, it was, it was a good thing. But like I say, I could have gone to any counselor and probably experienced that. That, had, that was not unique mm. to, to that. Right. But one of the things, the first things he did is he would say like, well, you know, how does that make you feel? I tell him some sad story from my life. And I, this, I remember this, and I think you'll relate to this, Evan. I remember saying, I don't know. How should I feel about that? And he was like, well, Joel, there is no should just like, how do you feel? And I'm like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Should I be angry about that? Should I be sad about that? Like, and I, through that process, I realized that I had never allowed myself to feel anything and that feelings all had judgment attached to them. And so Mm -hmm. just like you talked earlier about like not getting help for depression. I mean, I remember it's like, why are you sad? The joy of the Lord is your strength. You know, like you know, don't be sad, don't be angry, don't you know, and it was all of these they were definitely good emotions, which all had something to do with your relationship with God and everything else was
0: bad and sinful. Right. Exactly. And, and then like you said, I mean, the having someone tell you what you're feeling. I mean, I literally had people tell me what I was feeling. I'm sure you mm-hmm. did too, you know.
1: Yeah, and and he gave me it's probably common out there but literally a list of emotions feelings yeah and he's like well i want you to think about these things and when you think about them use this sheet to identify what you're feeling and you know now it feels so elementary but i was just so shut down from my whole life in in church that i did not i was so out of touch with what i felt so then as i began to process that and feel things and learn things about myself well Oh, that was like Hoover Dam breaking. Yeah. Um, so it became very obvious to me that my my wife at the time being out of it, she didn't know what was going on. She didn't recognize this husband of hers. Like, who is mm-hmm. this? What's happening to him? Why is he crying all the time? And you know, so on and so forth. <laughs> right. So it became obvious that I needed to involve her in the process because it wasn't fair to leave her out. So I did involve, I came out to her. And then together we decided that I would continue to get help and that we would work on trying to keep our marriage together, but that we also needed to get out of ministry because I just couldn't do it. I couldn't, Mm -hmm. I couldn't keep ministering to others and take care of myself. So that's when I resigned my church and we moved to a small area, a small town nearby. And I didn't tell the church what was going on. I just resigned the church. And, Mm -hmm. um, but the more I processed, here's the, here is the quote gift that ex-gay therapy gave me. Um, they kept, one of the things they said is, oh, well, the reason you're this way, well, it was that old false science of like, oh, did you have an overbearing mother <laughs> or an absentee father mm-hmm. or were you right. sexually abused? You know, it's got to be one of these things. And yeah. I was really determined to find out why I was the way I was. And I thought somehow that mm. would again, change everything if I had, if I could blame something or someone, you know? And, um, but in that process, they also told me, well, Joel, you have, you've never had a healthy relationship with men that wasn't sexualized. You've sexualized men in general, and you don't know how to have a healthy relationship. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) if that's the case and what I do, and they were like, you need to start being real with some people in your life because you've prejudged that everybody's going to reject you. And that was based on good evidence, but you, <laughs> you've prejudged them. And, you know, so start choosing some people to be real with. So I did. I took this very seriously because I was like, this is my last chance. If, I, if this doesn't work, nothing's going to, you know. And so what happened is I did choose some people to be real with and to say, hey, this is what's going on in my world. And to my surprise, many of those people... We're like, oh, Joel, I'm so sorry. I had no idea. What can I do? How can I love you? You know, kind of thing. And and, and not everybody did. I did lose some people during that. And I wasn't choosing a lot of people. But the unexpected gift was that I started going, wait a minute. So I am now sharing what I consider to be the worst part, the deepest, darkest, worst secrets. And these people aren't rejecting me. I started working secular jobs because I was no longer in ministry and the people there loved me. They never knew me as a pastor and they loved me. And so what started happening is I started going, why am I trying so hard to change
0: when I'm just being myself and people love me? Right. Because they, you know, they, they teach you, if you go on the outside and they see who you are, uh, you know, there, there's, the especially the lgbtq community is depicted in such a way as unwanted i mean i don't know about mm-hmm. you but i also heard growing up all the time that even the rest of the world didn't want us and that all these awful things were going to happen and god's judgment was going to rain down on us and then you get out into the real world a little bit the real world and and that stuff doesn't happen
1: exactly exactly in fact um i have a and. In- One of the chapters in my book, Godly But Gay, I have an entire chapter, which is an open letter to the church, and it's Mm -hmm. called, You Lied to Me. Wow. And I walk through all of those things that you said this. You told me I could never be happy. You told me I could never have peace. You told me that everybody outside of the church was wandering around lost and searching and trying to fill the God-shaped void with addictive, you know, like (laughs) just all (laughs) of this stuff. And I'm like guess what? I have now put it all to the test and I have discovered that it's all a lie.
0: Yeah. So was, was that the catalyst for you coming out then, or was there something else?
1: No, the catalyst was um, after nearly three years um, in XK therapy, by this time my wife and I had separated, we still weren't Mm -hmm. sure what was going on. I was losing all confidence that this was going to work and I felt like if you were to say on a scale of one to ten that one being you know all gay ten being no gay <laughs> and after three years of intense like group therapy individual therapy going to conferences retreats reading all the books giving myself to it I felt like I had moved to like 1.2 <laughs> you know yeah and and i was like this has got to get better than this like i have mm-hmm. spent three years thinking about nothing but my sexuality you know like i'd never thought more oh. about sex in all my life than when i was trying to when i was going through xk therapy you know judging every day by like some kind of successful meter of like Okay, did I think lustful thoughts? Did I masturbate? Did I go somewhere? Did I look at porn? You know, like, so what degree of success did I have this day, you know, kind of thing. And um, so I, I called, I emailed the original counselor. I had not been seeing him, but we stayed in touch via email and I just said, you know, Brad, I need you to connect me to some guys that are just like me, like just some normal guys. I, I'm not talking about national speakers. I've heard them speak, you know, a handful of those, but like just some guy like me that will say, oh, Joel, I hear you. I remember when I was there, just hang in there. It's, it's going to get better real soon. I was like, I just, need, I just need to talk to some real live people like that, you know, some success stories, because I was in group therapy and there wasn't, I didn't know a single success story. Like except Mm. these national speakers who now have all come out. But I, uh, you know, at the time I was like all these guys that I'm in group therapy with, they're just like me. We're all just like wallowing around together trying to figure a way out of this. So I thought, well, he's the director for the state of Indiana. He should have like a database or access to a database, right? You know, he emailed me back and told me that he couldn't do that. And when I asked why, he said, well, everybody falls in kind of one of two categories. One, this is a part of their life that nobody ever knew about, they took care of it on their own, they don't want anybody to ever know about it, closed chapter, we don't talk about it, move on. Or two, this is part of the life, they've taken care of it, they've moved on, but they're afraid if they were to talk to somebody like you that they would just fall back into it.
0: Hmm.
1: And literally that day, I, I was so frustrated. I'm like, so you're telling me I get to choose between fear or shame? Right. And I'm like, that's not a success story to me. And on that day, I had printed out the email. I was in the front yard going to pick up my kids, and I was waiting for them to get off the school bus. And I literally stood up, wadded that email up, threw it on the ground, and I said, then I'm done. I mm-hmm. am done. I have a life to live, and I'm not going to live it like this anymore. And that's really the day I came out to myself and to God. And I had a conversation with God at that time, too. Maybe not the exact same day, but very close within that. It, it all feels like the same day now, but I think sometimes it wasn't. But I look back and I <laughs> yeah. and I just had this very frank conversation with God, and I was went something like, you know what, God, here I am. You know me better than I know myself. You love me more than anybody else does. You know everything. You know my heart. Mm-hmm. You know my motivations. I've been taught all of these things about you, so you also know that I have spent thirty plus years trying to overcome this and you know that it has not worked and you know that I've been trying really hard (laughs) and so I was like so I'm just letting you know that as of today I am living as a gay man and I don't even know what that means but that's how I am going to move forward and if you have a problem with it please let me know I will be listening. You can do whatever you need to do to get my attention, which was scary for me to say because I honestly yeah. believe my children would die or something as a result of me saying that. But I just was like at that, yeah. wit's end. I'm like, I'm done. So you let me know. I'll be listening. You do whatever you need to do to catch my attention. I'll be listening. But I'm moving forward in a different way than I've been. And I always say it reminds me of the story in the Bible with the prophet who – was in the cave and god was trying to talk to him and there was an earthquake and there was a windstorm, and there was a fire and he kept looking for god's voice and all that and it was finally it was the still small voice and that that where god was at it was when things were right. silent and i always say god said everything when he said nothing at all
0: hmm. wow that's 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 beautiful that's powerful so i mean here you are can, what year was that
1: that would have been probably 2003 or four.
0: 2003 and four. Okay. And so here you are. We're going, what, 17, 18 years later? Uh, 16 or 17 years later? Yeah, something like that. I, the, that area, <laughs> that time of life
1: is a bit blurry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I struggle to put together a timeline, even when I was writing my book, because I'm like, well, wait a minute. I sure thought this happened then. And because it was just, it was a dark, difficult time. Um, mm-hmm. It was the only time in my life that I truly wanted to die and hoped for it i didn 't want to kill myself, but I wanted somebody else to do it mm-hmm. and I used to fantasize about being hit by a car, getting in a car wreck, and because I just wanted to die and mm-hmm. It was a very, very dark time. so now, when I look back sometimes' it 's a bit of a blur, and I have trouble piecing out the timeline, but yes in a sense is getting close to 20 years ago now
0: yeah yeah, yeah. well and, and you know and I hear that a lot too um, you know with that trauma it, it messes with our memories and everything and sometimes that's a response that protects us and sometimes it's just the reality of mm-hmm. what we went through you know we, we lose those memories because it's it is so difficult and it is so dark but life has seems to have really turned around for you you are married today again.
1: I am. Life is good. I love life.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> I really do. Um, so I met my husband. Uh, we've been together 15 years now. Mm-hmm. And um, I finished raising my children. Um, okay. So I was a single dad and I have a, you know, a working good relationship with my kids and who are all young adults now. But um, yeah. I, um, I decided during this time, during that time, that amongst other things is that I would never shut up about this. I was like, I don't want to be that person that goes, Oh, on the DL. I I went through all of that, but now I'm, you know, close chapter move on. No, I'm like, (laughs) no, I, I resented the fact that I couldn't find anybody that would talk to me during those times. So now of course it's a different motivation. It's like, you don't have to go through that stuff. So I will share my story and I will be open about it and transparent so that you can find your own peace and resolution in that because not everybody has the freedom or the privilege to be able to share openly, but I do. And Mm -hmm. I love it. And I love helping other people and empowering them and helping them make those bold moves in their life, whatever that is. Um, It doesn't have to even be about coming out, but I do believe 100% in living
0: authentically. Yeah. So, uh, so we're coming to the end now and we're going to get to um, you um, talking about some of the stuff that you're doing today. But before that, I have one last question. Um, in that year, so uh, that first year that you were out or you were you know, also probably navigating, leaving your uh, brand of fundamentalism, can, what is advice that you would give to someone who's in that same position? Someone who maybe they're come out and they're having to leave an environment that's not accepting or they're having to navigate a new world and um, learning to accept themselves for who they are, what's the advice you would give to someone?
1: Do it. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> so,
0: no, I mean, in a nutshell, that
1: is that is my yeah. advice, but I also recognize everybody's on a different journey and a timeline and it's hard, but I will say that the results, the the rewards of living your as your authentic self far outweigh uh, any losses that you have along the way. And what I discovered, it took me a while. is was, you know, there's hurt when people reject you or whatever. And I lost, well, I lost pretty much everybody. Literally. I don't want to, I don't want to sugarcoat that. I mean, I lost yeah. pretty much every relationship I had um, including my siblings and my parents. And you may be like, Oh, that sounds terrible. And I'm like, no, actually it was wonderful. Because now, I mean, it wasn't in the moment, but I realize mm-hmm. now I don't need that kind of that, that attitude in my life. Like these are not people that I would want to be friends with. So just because mm-hmm. we're blood related doesn't mean I'm obligated to ha- maintain some kind of relationship with people who um, don't, it, you thought loved you con- unconditionally. And when you find out it's conditional, it's hard to really even care about that love. Yeah. And so I think it, it, it sounds... It probably doesn't sound encouraging to some people, but for me, I was like, it's been a beautiful gift. The people that are in my life are the ones that I've chosen to be there and they love me and they love me as I am. And I have a great life and I don't, I have zero regrets. So I would do it all over again.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and I relate to that so much too, on a personal level, because I know I've been there. I've been the person who realized that I had to let go of family, that were just not going to be accepting and that were going to be harmful. I've looked at young people who I've, you know, they've said, how much longer am I supposed to hang on? And I've told them, you got to let go. And, you know, you see their face fall and it's hard for them to believe that it does get better and that it will be better and that they're going to be okay, but you're absolutely right. They're going to be okay. And the life ahead of them is so much better. And the love that they'll receive is so much greater. So it is worth it.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, you only get one life that we know of. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think to me, there's nothing sadder than meeting people who are like in their forties, fifties, sixties, who are still living in fear of what their parents will think if they knew the truth about them.
0: (laughs) 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 <laughs> Absolutely. I know. <laughs> yeah, But anyways, but we have, we have um, talked so much and I so appreciate you um, sharing your story, Joel, and coming on today. I just want to give time. Can you tell everybody about how they can get, is it still pre-order your book or can they just order it, it now? It
1: is it's still in pre-orders. It will be available um, this, the end of this month or and okay. the official launch of physical books in hand will be during pride month but pre-orders are right now through my website which is joelspeaksout.com the book is called godly dot 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 but gay uh the subtitle is a story of contradictions conversion therapy and coming out and uh, that is available via my website right now at a special pre-order price that will also include an autograph in from the author so
0: all right. So yep. Godly but gay, check it out at joelspeaksout.com. You do you have your other book on there too, the one that you I tell do. Mm-hmm.
1: I co-authored a small book called Cultivating Culture as a Garden with Dr. Nicole Price. Um, it's all about reaping the harvest of diversity and inclusion. So if you're looking for what your role is in that big those big words that you hear a lot about these days, diversity, equity and inclusion, this little book is designed it's a quick read and it just is to help you A better understand, well, what can you do? And we all have a role in this garden. And, um, so it's, it's a fun little read. All right.
0: And if you would like to, um, book Joel as a motivational speaker, someone to come in and talk, um, you can also do that on joelspeaksout.com.
1: Correct. Would love to do that.
0: All right. So again, thank you so much for coming Joel and, um, just, really appreciate it. Really appreciate it hearing your story and I'm looking forward to everyone else getting a chance to hear it as well.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, listening to this and and I appreciate you having me on Evan and keep up the good work. We need uh, more like you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us today, Queerstians. We hope you enjoyed the interview. Don't forget to check out Joel and all that he has to offer. JoelSpeaksOut.com. Follow Joel Barrett. And try to pre-order his book if you can, or at least get a copy of it by June. Godly dot dot dot, but gay. Check everything out that he has. And, of course, follow your queer story. We're on all social media platforms at Your Queer Story. You can also go to yourqueerstory.com. We have blogs there from different bloggers, not just me and Evan. We've got merchandise there. You want to make sure you get your merch for Pride Month. Even if there's not a parade, you still want to be representing your LGBTQ community. You can also check out scripts that you can download from past episodes on history and a lot of other things that are available to you at yourqueerstory.com. Thanks for joining us, and above all, stay queer.